as we continue in our 40 days of preparation. As we look forward to Easter, which now is less than a month away, which must mean good weather is coming, I hope, as we have a late Easter this year, but we're going to celebrate. And, and you know, as I think about preparation, there's, there's one element of preparation for a big event that I remember from my early childhood that was significant to me. And uh, I know I've mentioned my hometown before, and I got to thinking about it. It's not really a hometown. It's more like a home village. Uh, some people would call it a home pit stop. You know, I mean, just somewhere you, along the road there. In fact, my hometown of Damascus, or my home village of Damascus, I, I was shocked this week. I went out and to uh, look at the census reports of what the population really was, because when people ask me what the population of the town is, I usually give a number that I, that I think, anyhow. And I found out that in 2000, the census for Damascus, Ohio, was 166 people. I thought I had that many relatives living in Damascus. 160, the only thing I can figure is they came around during milking time and they didn't look in the barns or, or, or they came around during hunting season and they didn't look up in the tree stands. I don't know, but they, somehow they must have missed some people uh, because 166 people was amazing. And like I say, most of them were steers. If he went to the west end of town, my, my grandpa Frank owned the nursery and, we, and he would, if you want to buy flowers, if you want to buy trees, if you want to buy shrubs, you went to him. If you went to the middle of town and you want to get groceries or hardware, you went to the general store. That was my great uncle Ted. Ted Steer owned that. And if you, want to, if you wanted your mail, you had to go to the postmaster across the street. That was my great uncle Ralph, Ralph Steer. So we controlled the mail. We controlled the food. We controlled the, the, the um, uh, flowers and trees. And if you wanted electricity... My great uncle Ellis lived right behind us, worked for the power company, and if everything ever happened to the power in Damascus, he was the guy who did it. So, you know, as far as I was concerned, Damascus was the steers and whoever else we let in town, which was, you know, the only thing that ever bugged me was we didn't control the gas station. And if we would have controlled the gas station, we would have had it all. But, uh, but we got around that. My mom was a bookkeeper. She got hired as the accountant for the gas station, so we knew all their finances, so we could keep an eye on them. <laughs> So Damascus is a small town, and, and you know, small towns kind of get that small town feeling, and, and it was just kind of a lazy, especially in the summer, it was lazy, it was laid back, and all those things that you envision in small towns, nothing, nothing ever happens, nothing still never happens in Damascus, except, except one week a year during the summer. From 1866 to 1964, one week during the summer, every year, Damascus became the center of the universe of religion. At least in our minds it did. It became the center of all Christianity for one month in August. See, what it was, was the yearly meeting or the annual meeting of Friends Churches, which Willoughby Hills here, Friends Church, was a part of that and is a part of that. We would gather for our annual meetings. And for nearly a hundred years, that meeting was at Damascus. And so this town of back then, a hundred and I don't know how many people, would host hundreds of people that would come into town. Delegates would come in. They would bring their families. Pastors would come in. They'd bring their families. Missionaries would come in. They'd bring their families. Guests would come in. They'd bring their families. And so the town would explode. Our house sat right next to this meeting house where everything was. During that time, they would say, can we use your yard as a parking lot? 
So I remember that week, I walk out of my yard, I was five, six years old, cars filled my grass. I couldn't play baseball, I couldn't do anything. There were cars everywhere. Because we lived right next to the, to the building, our house was a, was a popular place for people to stay. Because in a town of a hundred and some people, there's not hotels, <laughs> there's no restaurants. So what are you going to do? You're going to stay with people. And, and the church would host people and we'd have people in our house, which I remember in my, in my mind again, the things I remember were not just seeing the cars on the parking lot, but I remember having to give up my bedroom. I was the oldest, so I had the biggest bedroom of the boys. I had a double bed. So I was easy to move out. In fact, my parents would move out of theirs and we'd host people and make a little bit of money because it was crucial for our family. And we'd cook meals and we'd do all those things. But the planning, the preparation that would go into that was significant because it was the big event where the population of the town would double. Think of that through the minds of a six and seven-year-old. Wow, that was exciting. Nothing happens in Damascus, but all of a sudden, people everywhere, cars everywhere, excitement, things happening. It was a great time. It was a great time. I was thinking about it 50 years ago. 1964 was the last time. Man, I can remember it like it was 48 years ago. It was that, that fresh. <laughs> okay, some of the memories aren't as great as others. But think about it. Put yourself now in the mind of a six or seven-year-old boy or girl in Jerusalem. About the time of Christ, 2,000 years earlier, 2,000 years earlier. Not quite as a sleepy town as Damascus. Based on the footprint of the city, we think Jerusalem probably had about 30 to 40,000 people. So 30 to 40,000 people would typically live in this town. But during this holiday, this Passover celebration that we're going to read about, people would just pour into town. In fact, historians estimate that there were probably between at least 150 to 250,000 people that would come to town. 30,000 people to 150 to 200, five, six, seven times population would come into town for a week to celebrate the Passover. Think of that from the viewpoint of a seven-year-old, a six-year-old. All these people, all these animals, what are they doing here? All the activity. Think about it if you were part of the economic board of that community. Wow, this is great. This is you know, bringing a lot of money into the community, and, and this had to be wonderful. But where do they all stay? And I'm sure some young people had to move out of their rooms and let some people from out of town, some family members from out of town come on in. We're told that some people would bring their tents and they'd camp outside the city walls. We're told that others would come and they would, they would stay in cities or villages right around Jerusalem so that they could come in for the, for the special time celebration. But it, was, it had to be maddening. It had to be crazy. And people would come and they'd come from everywhere. But the story we read about this morning, not only were people coming, but a person was coming. One person, a unique person, a person named Jesus of Nazareth was coming to the Passover. And we're going to pick up that story in John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, it'll be on the screen. Uh, we encourage you to, to follow along. But John chapter 2, this story starts off with Jesus on his way into town for the celebration. 2.13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In a temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and does for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. So the scene is set. You see Jesus coming in to Jerusalem with the rest of the travelers to celebrate. 
And what does he see? He sees merchants, and they're selling cattle, sheep and doves. And he sees money changers exchanging foreign money. You know, this, this was a, a scene that was annual, but actually, Deuteronomy 16, 16, there were actually three festivals that required every male in Israel to come to Jerusalem. They would come three times a year. And this was one of those occasions. And Jesus came, and he looked around. He looked around. What did he see? Well, you have a picture here of what he might have seen. This is how the temple, uh, we believe, would have looked. And you see, as you look at that, you see the, the temple courtyards. You see the, the, the walls. There's an inner wall, and then there's, there's, there's an outer wall. There's a, what is a, the temple proper. The temple proper was about the size of the infield of a baseball field, not real large. But it's that big, tall part that you see there, uh, the, the building made of gold. And in fact, um, historian Josephus, says from a distance the temple appeared like a mountain covered with snow you would either see the gold or you would see the white but around the temple proper where you would worship and where the where the sacrifices were made was a gate and inside that gate was a courtyard and there was a courtyard for priests and then further out there's a courtyard for men and then further out in the bigger middle courtyard there there's a courtyard for women and that's as far as the women could go and then outside that, that one wall and in, in, inside the large wall around, which was probably about the size of 10 football fields, is the court of the Gentiles. That's where foreigners could go and no further. We could enter into the temple, if you were not Jewish, into the temple courtyard, but you couldn't go any further than the courtyard of the Gentiles. The temple, we must understand, was a sacred and holy place to the Jews. When they would worship, like us, they would have synagogues all around. There would be synagogues in Jerusalem and synagogues in villages and towns around. And as we read, Jesus and others would go into the synagogues and teach. Synagogues would be buildings, much like our churches, much like we're in here today, where we would come and we would hear the teachings. We would come and we would celebrate and worship together. Synagogues became places of communion with, with others and fellowship and where the Jewish community could come and be together. But it wasn't the temple. There was only one temple. The temple originally built by Solomon and when Solomon built it and finished and he prayed this to God, I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. In that center building, of the temple was a holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant had rested when, it was, when they had it. And it was where the presence of God was. And the, to the Jewish people, this temple was where God lived. This was his dwelling place. And so when they came here, they were coming to the most holy place. Well, why were they here? Well, we get a little taste 
from that scripture there. They were here, when Jesus looked around, he saw them settle, ca- selling cattle, sheep and doves. They were there to offer sacrifices. The Passover was a reminder of the captivity that the Israelites had suffered, how God had delivered them through the blood of the lamb and they were to sacrifice and the sacrificial system took place and once a year they would come back and they would make these sacrifices and every male would have to bring the sacrifice. So not only were there people everywhere, there were sheep and cattle everywhere, through the streets and in, in the temple were sheep and cattle because everyone had to make a sacrifice. The priests would take them, even from the non, non-Jews, the Gentiles, would take them and take them into the temple and they would offer sacrifices. But they were also there to do something we don't like to do, and that's pay a tax. <laughs> there was a temple tax that was due every year and it was due by the Passover. And so they would have to come in and they have to pay their temple tax. But the temple tax could not be paid in Roman money because nothing would be more sacrilegious than to pay a temple tax with money with a picture of Caesar on it. So they would take that money and they would exchange it for the shekels, the temple money that is being used, and they would say, here, take that. And especially if you were foreigners, you might be coming with any kind of money and you would exchange that and they would take it. So there was these folks there with animals. There were folks there changing money. And that's what Jesus saw that day when he walked into the temple. He looked around and there was activity. It was bustling. And there was lots of happening. But this, this is where the story really starts to get interesting. Let's continue reading verse 15. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them out of the temple he drove the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered his prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. Wow. This is a picture of Jesus we don't get very often. In fact, this is the only time in scriptures we see Jesus using physical force. I don't know about you, but I gotta admit, my picture of Jesus is more a Mr. Rogers Jesus. You know, everything's great in the neighborhood. Everything's great. You know, come on over, I'll tell you a story. Bring your children to me. You know, I'll take care of that. You got, you got a boo-boo, I can heal that. It's a Mr. Rogers Jesus that I think I'm comfortable with and maybe you're comfortable with. He's a Jesus that comes to us and says, I'll be with you and I love you and I care for you and, and, and we just, we want to snuggle up to him. But the Bible here shows us a Rambo Jesus. <laughs> a Rambo Jesus. And he comes in and he says, I see something that doesn't belong and it makes me angry. And we got to deal with that. I see something here that's out of place. And I need to do something about it. I see something here that doesn't belong. And I'm passionate. And in fact, it says here that the disciples remind, rem- remembered, ah, oh, yeah, that passion for God's house is going to cons- consume the Messiah. He's just going to be filled with this passion for his house. And he's looking at his house and he says, 
this doesn't belong here. And Mr. Rogers Jesus all of a sudden becomes Rambo Jesus and he starts turning over tables. And he starts throwing the money around. And he starts letting the cattle go. He says, get out of here. Get out of here. I wonder that day, what was the tipping point? What was different that day than other days? Because surely Jesus had been in the temple before. What was it that day that struck him? What pushed him over the edge to act the way he did? Let's take another look at that temple. When you look at this picture of the temple, you see that courtyard of the Gentiles. The courtyard of the Gentiles was a place where the foreigners, those like you and me, those who were not part of the Jewish faith, could come and worship. We couldn't go any further. We were limited. And yet, as you walked into this place, it was something between a county fair and a barn. (laughs) It was something between a county fair with people yelling out and a barn. And Jesus is looking around and he's saying, these folks need a place to worship. These folks have come to be part of this celebration. And you've turned it into a marketplace. What's wrong with you? His passion for worship, his passion for people to have a relationship with God, his passion for people to connect with the Father, said whatever is coming between God and this worship, whatever is stopping true fellowship between God and myself must be removed. And if I've got to do it physically, I got to do it. Jesus was enraged by his passion. But there's more. It doesn't stop there. There also was corruption. Other verses, other chapters, and other books of the Bible give us a similar accounting of either this or another incident. And one of those is in Mark, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, Jesus is talking after this incident, and he says this, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Why would he say a den of thieves? We know a few things. We know, one, people had to bring the animals. Some people were traveling far, so they didn't bring an animal. They wanted to buy an animal there. So they would come and they'd walk in and say, can we buy, can we buy a sheep? Can we buy some cattle? And they said, well, sure you can. And here's the price. Have you ever been to an Indians game and a Browns game and priced a hot dog? <laughs> you know what it's like when you can't go anywhere else? I buy a bottle of water at an Indians game, a small bottle of water, and I think it's like $3.50. $4.50 for a bottle of water. It's because you can't go anywhere else. And they knew it. They also had to have cattle that were pure, cattle that were unblemished, sheep that were unblemished. And so who was to be the judge of the unblemished? It was the folks selling the other sheep. So they bring him in and the priests would look at him and they would say, 
Ah, no, that one's no good. You got to buy ours at our prices. Not only that, but there was an agreement between the priests and those who were selling. In fact, someone had to rent them, allow them to lease the space. And so there would be a lease agreement and the priests were getting rich and then the priests would get a cut. And if you got, so if you could get more for it, they'd get a greater cut. And it says too, they were changing money. Historians tells us that there was an exchange rate of about 10 to 20% on top of what the normal exchange rate would be that they would charge. They were taking advantage of the foreigners. And this had to anger Jesus. It had to make him just consumed with the compassion and the anger that we see that would cause him to go off the handle like this. Isaiah 56, which was quoted by Jesus, says this, I will also bless the foreigners, the Gentiles, you and me, who commit themselves to the Lord and who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain, of Jerusalem and fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Sometimes we stop there at the house of prayer. Jesus was saying, this is a house of prayer for all nations. I want all folks to come to me and you are creating barriers. You are putting up idols and, and, and whatever else may be there, things that are in the way for people to get to me. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when something has been set aside for whole as holy, when something has been set aside to be sacred. And you're trashing it. And you're making it a marketplace. And you're taking advantage of others. But most of all, you're turning people away from the gospel. You're turning the people away from relationship with God. In fact, God, and when he responded to Solomon after the building of that first temple, he said this, I have set this temple apart to be holy. To be holy. So it's a crazy, a crazy sight. Tables are flying. Animals are scattering. Coins falling on the ground, and nobody stops Jesus. And finally afterwards, finally afterwards, now that things have settled down, we see what the fallout is. And here's the fallout. It's in John chapter 2, verse 18. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. They didn't stop him, but afterwards they said, what gave you the right or who gave you the right to do this? If it's God, show us a sign. Jesus said, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Tear this temple down. I'll build it up in three days. 
John gives us the commentary. We have the hindsight like John did. That Jesus wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about this event we're going to celebrate and what we're preparing for. His sacrifice and his resurrection. That's where the authority comes from. That's the temple. You're looking for God in the temple? God is standing right in front of you. You're looking for God housed in a building? God is in flesh and blood. I'm right here. The passage after this closes and it says because of the many miracles that Jesus did many people believed. That's a cold story. You know, it's, it's, it's not often, in fact it's never in the Bible that you see Jesus in this kind of passion and this kind of enragement. But what does it mean? If, if you're in my class on Wednesday nights, we talk a lot about this. We're learning how to study and read the Bible. And we always talk about exegesis. We talk about taking what we've just done for the last 15 minutes, looking at the Bible, looking at the story, trying to get as much detail as we can, and finding out what, what it really means, what was happening. But exegesis without application sometimes leaves us very dry. Leaves us in a state of, okay, so what? So what does this story have to do with us? That's the question I want to know, and I hope that's the question you want to know this morning. What's this story have to do with folks sitting in a church in Willoughby Hills in 2014? Because we know this is not, well, at least we believe, chances are not likely, that things aren't going to happen exactly like this today. For once, for one, Jesus is not here in the flesh. Chances are we're not expecting him to come walking down these aisles in the flesh, so that's not going to happen. Second of all, the temple no longer exists. The one place where God's presence is, where God's presence is, does no longer exist. In the year 70, the temple was destroyed, just like Jesus had predicted in another passage. Not one stone was left on another. So if Jesus isn't walking here, and if the temple doesn't exist, what can we take from this? I think a big clue comes in that last fallout conversation that Jesus had. I think a lot of what we might draw from this today comes from Jesus' interaction afterwards. After the rage had gone, after the tables had been turned, and he sits down and, he, and he's talking and he's sharing and, and they come up and ask him, how can, why did you do this? How can you do this? What's, what authority do you have? And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want a sign? I'll show you a sign. And he says, tear down this temple. And John tells us, you know, he really wasn't talking about a building. He wasn't talking about a facility. He was talking about a body. And he was talking about his body. Jesus was starting to think and tell us Help us to understand that God was no longer going to live in that building in the back of the temple. That was no longer God's residing place. I was thinking about it this week. It's, it's kind of amazing to me. If that's really where God lived, I can imagine going to Jerusalem and, you know, sometimes you hear people say, where was God or where is God? And you can say, well, just 
you know, take two lefts, go three blocks, hang another left, and he's right there in the little building in the back, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't go in the room if I were you, though. You know, that's not good for your health. Uh, people don't come out of there alive. <laughs> but no, Jesus is saying, if you're looking for God, you're looking in the wrong place. And he's saying, I am a temple, and anywhere where God's presence is, is a holy and sacred place. Anywhere where God lives is holy and sacred. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You have received, who have you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your bodies. Jesus was introducing us to the New Testament concept that the presence of God is not confined to a building. The presence of God is not just something out in the heavens, but the presence of God is something in you and is something in me. In fact, in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and now it's Christ living in me. And he's saying to them, the temple is right here. The presence of God is right here. And this morning, the presence of God is here. Not because we have a building. You know, we can meet in a gymnasium. We can meet in a worship center. We can meet in a funeral home. We can meet in a bar. We can meet anywhere. But as long as we are committed to Christ, as long as we have turned our life over to him, as long as we have, as we talked about last week, ask him to come in and, and, and be born again, as the term was, the power and spirit of God lives in us and we become the temple. We become the temple. So is it possible this morning that when the scripture says that the, the Messiah, that there would be a passion for God's house, that that passion that was directed to that temple that day is now a passion that's directed to you and me? Christ's passion is for you and me personally. Christ's passion is that we live the holy life, that we, that we commune with God, that there not be any distractions, that there not be anything going on that is dividing us or keeping us from God. First Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. So if Jesus would walk today into your life, if Jesus comes in and says, you are my temple, I guess the question is, would he be overturning tables? Would there be things in your life that shouldn't be there? This morning, we're talking about cleansing. Jesus cleansed the temple, but that just is a, is a thought that leads us to where we need to be today. Are there things in my life? Are there tables in my life that need to be overturned? What does Jesus see when he walks through? If he walks through the temple of your life, are there th idols? Are there things that we've placed in front, more important? Are there things in our life that shouldn't be there? Uh, he's called us to live a holy life because it's his temple. It's where his presence is. Idols, sin, legalism, distractions. 
What kind of things were on your table this morning? What kind of things would Jesus say, ah, doesn't belong there, doesn't belong there? He takes a pretty serious attitude towards these, just like he does in the temple. In fact, he always has. God has always said, if there's, if there's idols in your life, if there's things that, that draw you away from me, you just, don't, you just don't play with it. You get rid of it. I love this. It's been a verse I've always, always been uh, special to me, I guess, out of Exodus, Exodus chapter 34, a few verses here. It's, it's Moses and God talking when, when they're going in to conquer. He says this, listen carefully to everything I command you today. Then I will go ahead of you and drive out the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Pezzarites, uh, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be very careful never to make a treaty with the people who live in this land where you will be going. If you do, you will follow their ways and evil ways will be trapped and will be trapped. Instead, you must break down their pagan altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles. You must worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. He says, when there are things that are in your life, when there are things that are separating you from God, it's not enough just to rearrange the furniture. You just don't go around and rearrange the furniture. Sometimes you got to turn over some tables. Sometimes you got to cut the Asherah poles. Sometimes you got to destroy the altars. And if there are things in our lives that are separating us from God, don't spend time just rearranging the furniture. Get rid of it. Make yourself holy. And that is what he's saying here this morning. We must destroy the altar. We must cut down the Asherah pole. We must get rid of it. It doesn't have a place in the life of someone who is a temple. Someone who has Christ living in their hearts. These discussions about holiness, though, the thing about them is they can always get almost legalistic. Well, don't do this, don't do that. That was a problem in the New Testament. Jesus had a discussion with some teachers of the law and some Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. And he says this, What sorrows await you, you teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but you do not reject the more important things, neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you don't accidentally swallow a gnat, which was unclean. But you swallow a camel. We can get legalistic and say, I do this, but I don't do that. And so that's why I don't want to start just pointing out or picking out what may be in your life. I want you to assess your life. The legalistic things, I'll never forget. Our house was right next to that yearly meeting house. It was also right next to our church. And uh, I'll never forget the year that my mom was out mowing. She was mowing her yard, and my mom loves to mow her yard. That's one of the joys she has just to get out and do that. But our, what was then called the Ministry and Oversight Board, the head board of the church, was meeting in the church right where they could look out the window and see our yard. A couple days after that meeting, one of the leaders came down and said, Evie, 
we have a concern about the shortness of your shorts when you are mowing your yard. My mom doesn't own a pair of short shorts. <laughs> it's never owned a pair of short shorts. So sometimes we can get legalistic and we can strain on the gnats and we don't see the tables that need overturned. A.W. Tozer said this, of all forms of deception, self-deception is the most deadly. And of all deceived persons, the self-deceived are the least likely to discover the fraud. There was fraud going on all over the temple courts. There was fraud in the presence of God. I just wonder this morning as we take a minute to focus on, is there any fraud in your life? Is there anything you just say should not be there? Are there things that just say, God, I know if you were to come through my house, you would turn over that table. If you were to go through my physical house, you would turn over that table. If you go to where I work, you'd turn over that table. It doesn't belong in my life. Over these next 40 days as we look at cleansing, God, take away what is distracting me from you. Take away what is inhibiting true worship. Take away what is take, making something that is supposed to be holy. And profane, making it profane. I've had to turn over some tables in my life. I've had to do it a few times. But it has to be done. It has to be done. So my question I want to leave you with is this. What tables in your life need overturned? What tables in your life this morning need overturned? You're the temple. We're the temple. And God wants us to be a holy people. It's freeing. It really is freeing when you turn over those tables. Get rid of the junk. Would you bow your heads with me this morning and we'll just pray. And Again, it, this is between you and God. But don't be self-deceived. Don't be self-deceived. Look at yourself honestly and say, God, I, there's just something in my life that doesn't belong there. There's something that is creating an impasse in my relationship with you. It's something that is distracting me during worship. It's something that's not allowing me to be the father, the mother, the leader, the teacher, the employee, the employer that I want to be as an example of you. Lord, this morning we just... We just turn all these over to you. I pray for decisions that are being made right now, for tables that are being overturned. God, help us to help us to seek your kingdom. Help us to present ourselves as holy to you. Help us, Lord, to have that same passion for our relationship with you as you have for your relationship with us. Lord, forgive me 
where I've been deceived open my eyes to my own self-deception. Lead me into your paths. Guide and direct. Free us from these idols and these hindrances from this sin. And we will give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll ask the ushers to come at this time. And as they come, I just encourage you. uh, Tables are sometimes heavy. And especially when